0: very fortunate to be joined on Football CFB today by Keith Hackett. Keith has managed at Football League level, he's managed at Premier League level, and he was also a FIFA listed referee as well, which is an incredible achievement. When you talk about getting to the top of your field, that is getting to the top of your field. First of all, Keith, how are you?
2: I'm very well, thanks. Uh, Obviously, we're all sort of uh, fearful of COVID, I think, particularly at my age, but... uh... I'm president of a local team, Paddleston Church FC. They play in the North East Counties and uh, we kick off the league tomorrow. So that's good to get football back at that level uh, because, you know, to sustain uh, a team in the North East Counties and then the other 21 teams that form the club is quite an ordeal. And uh, we rely on volunteers and we're very fortunate. We've got... uh, you know, a backroom staff that, that give up a, a massive amount of their own time to ensure that the club, club kicks over. And uh, we have a manager of the first team who is also deputy head of the local, I term it grammar school, because it's it's of that status. Um, and our second team guy, uh, Lenny, as we know, know him, Stephen Lentol, is also equally as passionate about out our club so it's good to get it back and it's good that people who have put in a great deal of effort our sponsors and um, those guys that have cut the grass painted the stands and done everything else uh, get the opportunity to watch their team so looking forward to that
0: and then you sum up for me what football is all about when it comes to grassroots and non-league football you obviously as we'll come to refereed in the premier league the elite level of football but just how important is the grassroots element, not just as, as, as footballers, but as referees as well, so we can let
2: people make their way in the game? It's massive. Um, you know, I spent... Uh, what I think people don't understand is the apprenticeship, because it, could, it can be, you know, seven, eight years and a lot of competition, 30,000 referees in England um, registered. So a competition is fearful, but it's also about enjoyment and keeping healthy and having that passion at the end of the week that you're going to referee a football night. So uh, throughout my career, um, I refereed grassroots football. People thought I was mad. I would referee perhaps, uh, you know, Germany v. Italy on a Wednesday night as an international. And then uh, Black Bull Taverners against the Angel on a Sunday morning. Or, or whatever um, and, and it was really have whistle, world referee and you know and there was certainly we spend a long apprenticeship and under very competitive situations and I think I was somewhere around about 12 years in grassroots football you know after, after about 10 years the Northern Premier League was formed and so I'd been refereeing in the Yorkshire League and then the Northern Premier League was really the first time I came across semi professional football. So you, you were actually going over the hill and, and refereeing Altrincham with a bit of bite, uh, Wigan, Mattlesfield, um, you know, and uh, Northwich Victoria, Boston United. I mean, these are clubs, you know, I mean, obviously we're all saddened by the demise of, of Mattlesfield because it, it's always been a friendly club. And for me, it was just a ride over the hill into Lancashire where I think, in fairness, the, the football was a bit fiercer. Um, you know, that 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 win bonus of five or ten quid <laughs> um, put, a, put added pressure on the referee when he either made a mistake or they didn't see eye to eye with the decisions you made. But that was the challenge. And then, of course, you've got the the passion of the spectators who you could almost touch. and. Um, but but nonetheless, the the great thing is they would they would tell you after the match that they thank you. I mean, okay, you they might hurl verbal abuse at you during the course of the game and disagree with the decisions. There's nothing nicer than coming out of the grounds, sort whether of Altingham or or, or and somebody saying, "Hey, well done, ref," and getting climbing into the car for the drive home. So it is a long apprenticeship, and all those guys that get there go through a tier system they have to prove their cap- capabilities at a given level and then when they get they get that they they move up the leagues and then at some point uh, in their career they have to decide are we going to be assistant referees or are we going to be referees and uh, you know I mean one guy this year that's been promoted onto the Premier League Darren England was an international assistant referee when he suddenly decided really I want to go be a referee so he gave up that went back a few levels and started working in the conference and, the, and then onto the Football League and now has worked his way back onto the uh, onto the Premier League. So it's not always, you know, you get there by favour. You've really got to perform. And, you know, um, in my career, throughout my career, and I, I was fortunate to referee for 23 years at the professional level, 10 of which were at FIFA level, so 10 years um, of refereeing international football. Uh, but every game was, was competitive. Every game you were marked or assessed, detailed report, an honest assessment of your performance. Um, you know, you didn't referee to the assessor, but as a former referee sat in the stands, when that was the point, you could learn from that. They come in the dressing room, give you a bit of moral support. You you always think as referees the game's gone worse than it actually has. And therefore, that support mechanism in place. Sadly, oh, I think some people might enjoy the fact that they no longer have assessors at, at games in the Premier League and in the championship. That's a decision made by people who now run the PGMOL. I think that's a sadness because you know that there, there are times when you you do need a, a, a bit of moral support because you know the game might have not gone well or or that you're receiving criticism after the match and you're looking around because you know you you've got a dvd but you ain't gonna play straight away. So there are lots of things that have changed that, that add to the pressure at the very highest level, you know. So 12 years local park, I mean I was a, I had no intention of becoming a referee. Um, I started in 1960. Um, I was a local lad playing in local football when somebody said, look, will you take a referee's exam? And I did that with no intention of refereeing. referee. And then on a day when I hadn't got a game on a Saturday in a local league, I, the county FA rang me and sort of said, uh, Mr Hackett, uh, Hillsborough Boys Club versus Sheffield United Juniors, and put the phone down. I hadn't. I hadn't even got the opportunity to say no, thank you. Uh, so I then had to uh, borrow a shirt, uh, go out and buy a whistle, uh, clean the boots. To reasonably look like a referee, and I walked onto a school field, playing field at intake school, um, and refereed a match. And um, I really enjoyed it. And and after the match, a guy came up, a guy who was with Sheffield United Juniors. Who I let, later learned was his dad was, uh, sorry, his son was a football league uh, linesman, but he came up and said, "I think you've done a good job." And I think then you suddenly go, "Wait, just a minute! You're involved for 90 minutes. You're getting enjoyment. Um, sometimes as a fullback, you might get to kick the ball two or three times in a match." And that's where it all started. So it was that introduction, and then I was trying to referee 100 games a season, you know. So the more games you got, I think the more efficient you became. Um, And as you moved up the ladder, you suddenly had to be fitter, more mobile. And uh, and so there was that challenge between uh, college, working as an apprentice engineer in the steelworks, and refereeing. And uh, throughout my career, that that was always a challenge. The challenge of getting, you know, as you go up the ladder, getting time off to referee a football match. You know, and when I look back, those perhaps were the biggest challenges. Not going out at Old Trafford mm-hmm. or whatever. It's actually convincing the boss that I need a few hours off to referee a football match, and um, and the day g- the day got really extended because you would you you know. I went into sales and that helped. I became a sales manager and then then eventually a sales director. So, in a sense, a bit more freedom from an office or a works environment going out and seeing customers meant that you could plan your week around the game that you're going to referee in midweek and uh, and then invite your customer along and say, Look, do you, if you want to watch a football match, come along. And I mean, that was probably at Northern Premier League level and then on to the football league and around 1972 as I say 12 years afterwards I became an linesman. I mean okay we know them as assistant referees now and uh, I found out one hell of a job um, you know I'm, I'm working with someone out in the middle um, I'm making big decisions on offside I'm trying to support free kicks and everything but ultimately I'm not making the decisions really the guy in the middles making the decisions and sometimes
1: you would watch and you would learn off that individual you know and and uh, so i got into football league and then um,
2: two three years later i became a referee on the football league and uh, you remember your first game because that was over the hill stockport county versus northampton uh distraction of course at stockport county was the four sevens going ahead Uh, on the flight path and uh, I've I've always got this fascination. I think most people when they see an aeroplane, particularly as low as these aircraft are going over over Stockport County's ground, it's a distraction and of course you you know, you go out, uh, you're pretty tentative, you're you're now dealing with professional players really full time Um, and what I found surprising was the discipline was better you know, uh, because, I mean, look, the Northern Premier League was blood and thunder. That was a tough league, you know. And, of course, when I look back, you had people like Johnny King from, from Altringham, you, you, you had uh, Jim Smith, who became a, a well-known manager. He, he was manager of Boston United. Howard Wilkinson, who managed uh, Leeds United to a Premier League championship was was also playing at Boston United. So you you were suddenly in the Northern Premier League coming across young guys who wanted to kick seven bells out of the opposition because he'd been a professional footballer and that's what he aspired to. So there was this constant conflict that, that you had to manage. And uh, that, w- that gave you a really good grounding for Football League. And, uh, you know, I can remember going to Lincoln, uh, Lincoln... Uh, city um referring the midweek game um and yorkshire television were there watching you know that was the first game and that had actually been televised and uh, i'd really enjoyed it but two or three days later i got a phone call from the manager of lincoln who complimented me on my performance and, and said look um just continue to com- communicate well Put in the effort, you'll get the rewards. Football will reward you if you put the effort in and you're trying because I think you were trying really hard and you delivered quite well. That was Graham
1: Taylor, who was then the manager of Lincoln. So you suddenly... Those phone calls and even calls from people like Sam Allardyce, um,
2: if you like, generated respect. These were human beings. They had had the passion. They had the element. But hey, just a minute. They were prepared to pick the phone up in the middle of the week and suddenly remembered, hey, I meant to phone that referee and did so. And and I I said afterwards, uh, some years later, to uh, Graham Taylor, he didn't perhaps appreciate the boost to my confidence that that gave me, that someone in football... In a, in management, had said, "Hey, you weren't bad on that particular day." Not an ego thing, but just a, a balance. And uh, and I suppose that, that's how it was. You know, I mean, of course, in that period, I mean, it, I, there was a longevity about it. I can remember going to Workington, because on the football league, you might referee the first division, but you'd also referee the fourth. So you you, you know the games varied. And I was at Workington and uh, I'd refereed at Workington and I'd arrived early and the groundsman gave me this tour of the ground and we had a cup of tea and we chatted. I was hours before kickoff and, um, and then he took me across to the tractor and uh, Massey Ferguson, grey Massey Ferguson. I always remember it and he said to me, uh, Mr Shankly bought me this. So I've gone, pardon? Bill Shankly, the Liverpool manager, bought this tractor. I just wanted to know. And I, I sort of, I like think he's pulling my leg. Anyhow, I, the game was over. It went okay. Uh, and there was a knock on the door. And there was kind of come in. And he it, it was a fairly brusque guy. Came in, he said, listen, um, I've just found out you're refereeing at Anfield next Saturday. And I'm going, yes, I am. Uh,
1: Will you mention my me tractor to Bill, Bill Shankly? And here's the rub. When you go into Liverpool, you, you actually had
2: a cup of tea before the game in the players' dressing room. The players aren't there. They're, you know, they only, are, they're only allowed in there after the match. You might get uh, one or two uh, wives and, and kids in the room, but it's a fairly big room on the, the other side. And then walk Bill Shankly. You know, and I mean, like, these are iconic, aren't they? I mean, I mean, like you look and you go, wow at Liverpool which is a remarkable place to go and he came across and said Mr Hackett and go oh Mr Shankly he goes how was my tractor last week
1: <laughs> that's absolutely
2: stunned <laughs> and so for the next 10 minutes uh the conversation was nothing to do with football at all it was about his tractor and uh his passion and you could see his passion but so in that sense um I think football always keeps your feet firmly planted, you know, you, you always want to do better, but sometimes that's, uh, that's not the case. In, in games, in your mind, everything that you do is right. Uh, but of course, when you, you suddenly get television, um, then, you know, you, you've, uh, you've, got, you've got effectively a different set of pressures. You know, uh, and mine was match of the day uh, and match of the day was on at 10 o'clock or 10 past 10 on a Saturday night. And everybody in football watched match of the day. and uh, But there was no live games as such. And, and of course, you you know, I, I can remember my first match of the day game and I was, I was on the line. It was Nottingham Forest against West Brom. And I arrived at the ground and there was the grey and green vans and I'm thinking, wow, I'm really looking forward to this game. And uh, I walked across the car park. I'd come down from Sheffield by train. I hadn't got a car. Walked across the car park um, and was gobsmacked to see grey and green vans with BBC, all of them. And, and I've gone in the referee's dressing room, the late Roy Capey. And I've gone, wow, we're on TV, Roy. I'm, I'm fantastic. And we go out and have a look at the pitch. And I've gone like, there's a camera in the stand. There's a camera down near the, tu- near the tunnel area, one behind the goal. I'm thinking, I've got to be across the pitch. I've got to be facing the cameras. And that's what I did. And, uh, and then when the toss-up took place, uh, Forrester got the attack. And I'm thinking, home team on the attack, going to be on TV. But Ali Brown of Nottingham Forest, after about 20 minutes, had put in a hat-trick. West Brum were winning 3-0, I hadn't raised the flag on anything. I hadn't made a, th- a ball out of play or whatever. And then the ball came to John Robertson, who was a yard in his opponent's eye. And I flagged. And this was like a major decision, because Robertson now is heading for goal with the ball. And I've got this dilemma, do I go or do I stay? And I'm thinking, well, it's offset. But you doubt yourself. And so I'm thinking, please don't score. And of course, Robertson rounds the goalkeeper, puts it in the back of the net, 3-1. Until the referee sees my flag and you get this verbal sort of view of offside and a look of despair from the referee. And I've nodded. And and then welcome home to football because I've suddenly got an orange that's hit me on the right-hand shoulder. I've got about five quid in loose change around me. And uh, I searched down the line to get some support from a, a policeman to, to try and stop what was happening behind me. And the cop said, you're a million miles wrong with that off linesman. No way you're getting support from me. <laughs> Told me where to go. And so it was, a, it was a fairly lonely uh, experience. But th- what I learned was that incident wasn't shown on television at all uh and uh but it it just shows you the the sort if you like the pressure you know i mean if and and you know throughout my career it, uh, in 1979 I, I mean as a lad uh my dad had take i was a sheffield wednesday fan so i would walk from home a terrace house two or three miles and um you know we would stop at the pub on the way. My dad would have two or three pints. I'd have an orange juice and a packet of crisps. Got two brothers, but we used to go one or two together. And then we would surf over the heads of the spectators on the car down the front. So in '79, I was appointed to the FA Cup semi-final, Liverpool versus Arsenal,
1: and um, it was at Hillsborough. And and I've gone like, wow. Well. My, pa- my father had passed away by then. But
2: what I did do, and, and I always really appreciate what I did. I mean, I don't know why I did it, but I, I did it. And that was, I drove to where I live. The, the houses
1: had been raised to the ground. And uh, I walked to the pitch. I walked to Hillsborough with my bag, with a blazer. You know,
2: and, like, and people going, hey, Keith, what are you doing? People who recognise me, Sheffield people i went going to, going to Hillsborough. And they, and they were gobsmacked. And of course, the FA were, because when the FA came in and sort of said, what's your fee and expense? I said, no. And the guy looked at me, gone out, and I go, listen, the pleasure of refereeing at Hillsborough as a, as a as a football fan, Sheffield Wednesday, is something that, you know, it's a dream, really. I mean, it, the game was a draw, and then we went to a replay of Villa Park, and that was a draw, and then I'm thinking, now we're going to get the third game. Um, but they didn't. Uh, they said, two's enough. And they were right. It was, it was the right decision. So I was 79. And um, I was getting more and more established in the league, enjoying the games, playing a fair amount of advantage, building a reputation, I suppose. And, um, and then in 81, um, I received a phone call six weeks before the FA Cup final absolutely gobsmacked that someone would ring me up and say, what are you doing on this particular day? And I said, well, I've got a clue. They go, well, you're refereeing the FA Cup final. So to referee the 100th FA Cup final is a great honour. It's, it's an ambition of it. I think a lot of referees. Uh, for me, it was an ambition, and therefore to have the pleasure of refereeing the first game, it went to a replay. Um, and the atmosphere and the build-up, We were still in that era where the FA Cup had great meaning. It still has meaning now, but it was a whole day event on radio and TV, Um, and it went to a draw. And I can remember walking up to get my medal, thinking, "If the Queen Mother gives me the medal, that'll mean I'll not get the replay." And so I I, I sort about,
1: and there was no medal and then as, as i turned to walk i was beaming because i knew then i'd almost certainly got a cup final <laughs> so it was um
2: the, the the replay you know they still look at it uh, ricky veer scoring the winning goal is still something that's uh, looked at on, a, on a regular basis and in 81 um i was also invited to referee on the north american soccer league during the summer. So, out I went to America and, you know, uh, you then suddenly come New York, Cosmos, Tampa Bay, Rowdies. Um, There was something like 30 games in a six, seven week period. So it was sometimes Saturday, Sunday, midweek for sure. And then another game thrown in. But it was, um, it was a great learning curve, because all of a sudden you, you, you're on the same field as some top players, you know, world-class players, some with arrogance, um, some who just wanted to take a more, if you like, uh, tougher approach. So you, So you had this mix of English players, American players, German, South American. And so all, all of a sudden, this this mix gave you a great experience of dealing with different personalities. Um, yeah, so I can remember, the, you know, one of my first games was uh, at
1: Tampa Bay Rowdies and collected from the hotel in a police car, driven to the ground and then um,
2: through the main stadium down into the bottom, body of the stadium, and then in a police car and then coming out and driven onto the middle of the pitch. And the, the copper who was, I learned afterwards, was a, a referee saying, Look, Keith, you've got to get out now, mate. Just wave. And of course, I was in my kit. And so I could stretch out the car and over the loudspeaker, tonight's nice referee, all the way from England, guest referee, Mr. Keith, thank you. And I waved. And I was thinking, didn't do this at Rochdale, didn't do this at Stockport. <laughs> Uh, but again i I saw America, I saw Canada uh, and uh, great learning curve so and I also then received the FIFA appointment, so I was also now on the international panel um, and and that, those ten years on the panel were were just quite remarkable. They go very quickly, but you know you you meet you meet some pretty uh, different people. Um, you see some great players,
1: you know, Platini, uh, for Juve, Boniek for Juve, Rossi, Juve, you've,
2: you've, you know, you've got a mix of players and, um, and you could traveling to different countries, different experiences, and occasionally going out Azteca and re- refereeing in Mexico, an international game in front of one hundred and twenty thousand
1: spectators. You know, altitude, or, or you you know, going to uh, anywhere in Europe. You know,
2: and and that in itself is a great experience. I mean, I, I I can remember the problems in Poland with the shipyard workers, and uh, I was suddenly appointed to referee Gdansk versus Juve. And the, the first few days of getting that appointment, uh, the Polish government was saying, no, we, we're not allowing any uh, English guys in to the, into the country. And, you know, I, I was kept well informed. FIFA and UEFA saying, look, if Mr Hackett's not going to be allowed into the country, then you're going to forfeit your position on the international panel. Um, went to, to Gdansk. I met like Valencia, who later became the president during the course of the match. Uh, the ball went into the stand, and then the crowd opened up, all started singing solidarity, and there in the middle was Valenza. I mean it was these things and then having you know having many trips into the Eastern Bloc, going through checkpoint Charlie and like talking to people who spoke perfect English and they'd learned it through listening to bbc and uh, and th- those people have seen different different ways of living uh, different control mechanisms uh, it it's quite quite interesting so in that in that period you're developing your career you you know and you you still got a business because I'm I'm not I'm an amateur in a professional environment um, And, of course, then you're getting time off. So your time off is your annual holidays. You're taking a day here, three days here, because every trip into Europe was three days. If you went into Russia, it was a five-day trip. So because of the delays getting into into Moscow and then flying out of Moscow and all the delays and security and all that
1: goes with Um, But interesting, you know, having... Watch the wall and having listened to people and
2: looking at how they were oppressed in some instances, then on unification night, refereeing a team from West Berlin and East uh, Germany, on unification night, having refereed the match, we then
1: rushed to watch people knocking the wall down. And uh, in, in a sense, a piece of history.
2: That's you incredible. Know. Yeah, you know, and, and you look back, I mean, uh, I was appointed to the Olympic Games in 88, so uh, Korea was to some degree unknown as a country. Uh, we arrived in South Korea. There, were, there was really no... Okay, in 66, the South Korean football team had done really well, but the, the structure of football... In, in Korea wasn't, wasn't great, but nonetheless, they built the stadiums. And it's the first time that, as every decision you made, the fans were applauding. Their knowledge of football wasn't there. So, but having said that, uh, I was fortunate enough to referee the, uh, the semi final between uh, West Germany and, and Brazil in the Olympic Stadium. So it was great experience traveling Guadalajara. Uh, and Leon and various other places in, within, within Mexico City. And then I later went back to referee some uh, tripartite sort of internationals. Really good.
0: In terms of your career, um, who were the biggest characters that you, that you refereed? Because we, we notice that there's always clips of Paul Gascoigne, for instance, having a chat and a giggle
2: with referees. Who were those characters for you? Well, Gascoigne was certainly one. Um, Vinnie Jones, another, Emily News, um, Dal Gleif, uh, George Jordan, Gordon McQueen. Um, I refereed at Old Trafford and they'd just come from Leeds. Uh, and uh, George Jordan had this habit of putting both arms down the front of it to, to almost catch the ball and was getting away with it. And I blew, uh, rightly or wrongly, I'm at Old Trafford. So I blew the whistle and gave a free kick and he gave me an absolute mouthful. Really, really annoyed with what I'd done. So I just called him over and to, to calm him down. I said, right Joe, let me tell you, you're banned from Stringfellow's
1: Nightclub in London. And the look on his face was absolutely amazing. And he ran off and
2: I ran off. And then a bit later on, uh, Gordon McQueen says to me, uh, ref, ref, what's with the ban on Joe Jordan? I said, well, if you step out of turn, you're going to get banned as well. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, my brother is a director at Stringfellow's Tiny Club in London. And my brother actually knew them. So during the course of the game, we've got this banter going while am refereeing the match. It was quite amusing because the assessor said, You allowed the number nine of Manchester United to control this game it was it was nothing to do with any descent that first burst we hand, handled it uh, but those are the things i mean i can remember in my first game at anfield uh, against uh i think it was west
1: brom yeah it was and uh, or wolves and uh Emily News has put in quite a strong challenge of
2: which I've blown for the free kick and, and uh, he comes up and gives me a mouthful, not happy. Because I'm the young boy on the block then. I've, I've just said, calm down, calm down. And
1: he's gone, calm down.
2: And I've gone, right, come here. Now. I said, listen, if you don't calm down, I'm going to caution you. Yellow a car. He goes, what? I'm going to caution you. So he went top. Uh,
1: and I've gone, right, okay then. What's your name? And he's gone, what? Well, what's your name? He goes, I'm the England captain. Have you seen me on television? I've gone, yeah, what's your name? And he's and and this is like so I've gone, H E M L I N G.
2: Not saying exactly what he said. What that? I've gone, look. I know it's Emwe, calm down, here's the yellow card, make it don't turn to red. And after that, um, not immediately afterwards, but a short time afterwards, you know, the next time I went to Anfield, the, the respect was there. Uh, I'd earned the respect. they he'd seen the amusing side. And of course, um, when he came across to uh, manage Rotherham, uh, and lived, I think, in Derbyshire, somewhere in Sheffield. He lived in uh, this region. And uh, I'd come across him fairly regularly because he played for local teams, pub teams, you know. And therefore, he played a lot of junior football. People didn't recognise that. And, of course, I, he played charity matches, did a lot for charity, and I'd refereed those matches as well. So we, we, we formed quite a friendship. The, you know, he'd ask the questions, and you'd give the answer. And, and that's how you form but there are a lot of characters i mean gascoigne uh, i was uh, i was referring a testimonial for a, a doncaster rovers player who'd been in, who'd been injured and was it had ruined his career and i'm five minutes from getting the teams out onto the pitch at, at rovers old ground there's a knock on the door and he walks gascoigne and he's gone uh, i want to play the goalkeeper was from the northeast, and they'd been schoolboy buddies. I want to play. And I've gone, just mate, minute, where have you come from? Well, I'm going from Newcastle back to Spurs because he was down with Spurs at that time. And uh, uh, Billy Bremner was the manager of, of uh, Barnsley We were playing Donny. Uh, Everton didn't turn up. They, there was a problem with Everton. Anyhow... Uh, I'd shout Billy Bremner, ask him to come to my room with the, the other manager at Doncaster and the outcome is to go, right, okay, allow him to play but we'll tell our players to stay And Now, let me tell you a story that's not often told but during the course of that match, he's, he's having a dig at me but that was in. A, a friendly dig but still not happy. Occasional free kicks. So I run alongside him and said, listen, next time I give you a free kick, remember this is a testimonial, next time it's a free kick, Here, just show me this. And I handed him my red card. So, of course, we wait for the next challenge. In blows the whistle, and Gascoigne gives the red card. Entertainment. He gives me the red card. And I sort of ducked a little bit and moved a few yards. So you can imagine when he went to Rangers, wasn't it? And if you remember, the the referee dropped his cards. And in similar fashion, Gascoigne showed the referee the yellow card and received uh, another yellow card in exchange and quite a admonishment uh, i had the local press on who'd been at doncaster and see me do that and said look will you come in and i went listen i want to stay a million miles away from that, that particular problem but yes i probably helped to uh, create it there, there, there are many um,
1: characters it right? and i was very fortunate i mean uh, I can remember uh, refereeing Juve in a game at home and um,
2: and being asked about John Charles and sort of said, well, at that particular time he'd had a hotel, it was in the news, that it had gone belly up, and uh, I explained this to the to the club. And then a week later, ten days later, about we had a testimonial, and I refereed John Charles' testimonial. And he, he insisted that it was linked with Bobby Collins.
1: So it became a joint, uh, a joint testimonial. And uh, in that game was my favorite player
2: ever. And that was Kenny Leash. And Leash turned up, Platini was on the park as well. But Leash turned up and played. And it, I, I, you know, it was, uh, it was great. And, uh, you know to have somebody like john charles knock on your dressing room door after the match and, and warmly thank you and praise you for giving your services you know these these guys are okay past now but they're iconic you know these, these guys are you know that when i look back to my passion in football people say why do you take up refereeing i don't know why i took a referee but in reality. I had the best seat in the house and I was actually seeing some of the best players in the world. So if I, if people say to me, well, who were the players you refereed? Platini, Carlos Alberto, Maradona, George Best. It's quite a range in a period of 20 odd years on the football league or on the international list for 10 years, you're going to come across these uh, iconic players, you know, and I came across, Carlos Alberto. Uh, very early on, I was uh, re- going to referee New York Cosmos against Vancouver Whitecaps, and we were stuck in Lincoln Town in in the in the car that was taking me to the ground. And um, I saw this flash. I didn't actually see the guy, but there was a guy run past my taxi, and the the, the driver got out, started shouting in what I thought was Hispanic, and uh, there was a conversation, and then. Uh, the door opened, and uh, I was sat alongside Carlos Alberto, the captain of Brazil, who had lifted the World Cup, but also was captain of New York Cosmos.
1: <laughs> like,
2: he looked at me, and I looked at him. He didn't know who I was. And I just said, don't worry, I'm the referee. It, it doesn't kick off. The game doesn't start until I'm there. We are delayed. Don't panic. And he calmed down, smiled. Um, and then I remembered, uh, about 100 yards from the stadium, I'm suddenly thinking, if I'm going to get out of this car, I'm going to step out one side and Carlos Alberto's going to step out of the other. It's not going to look good for me as the referee. So I had the guy drop the drop it about 200 yards, 300 yards from the ground and walk to Giant Stadium. And the guy goes, where's your car? And I gone, don't worry. It's a long story. Walked in. But those, those are the sort of iconic things
0: that, that uh, help. In terms of refereeing now, there's lots of talk about the technology in the game, goal line technology, VAR. What's your opinion on the current state of play when it comes to refereeing?
2: Well, of course, um, when I retired from refereeing, um, I became an assessor after some time. And then I put forward papers to Sir Dave Richards. Uh, that The game needed to be professional. referees needed to switch from professional I'd, I'd lost a job i mean I, uh, I refereed New Zealand against uh, Australia, and after I came off, my job had gone. Um, I can remember not you know being appointed to the European Cup final you know a big honor, having to turn it down because there was a board meeting that I had to attend so the pressures of work, so I was able to take forward a case to the Premier League through Sir Dave Richards about professionalising referees. So we professionalised them. And a couple of years after this started, I became the boss. Um, And I decided then, you know, I I chatted to managers. And the good thing is that uh, I got a lot of advice from uh, Sam Allardyce. I, I learned about his technical side, sports science and all that goes with it. So I bring in a sports scientist I bring in nutritionists, vision scientists, all, tech, if you like, scientific aids to refereeing. But I also introduced the communication kits, all heart monitors. And some years later, I was sat at Old Trafford as the boss. And I watched uh, Roy Carroll spill the ball, and he was a meet, a good yard over the line. Mark Clamberg the referee, stood near the halfway line in the right position. The assistant referee was in line with the offside, second-last defender, which is the correct position, miles away from the goal line. Because this was a snap kick at goal, Um, and he dropped it. I could see in the stand that this was a goal. So that uh, (coughs) that summer, um, I was asked, uh, given Blue Sky thinking, what would I introduce into the game? And um, I just, off the top of my head, said goal line technology
1: asked why gave a reason said it was a matter-of-fact decision that given what i'd seen we cannot
2: get that wrong and therefore we need this technology and in fairness they then said right people like Al alfayad who owned fulham at the time and Arad said go and do it go and get it and I, I can remember i think it was richard scudamore who was then the ceo of the premier league saying to me you put your head in the noose, but they can still expect you now to deliver. And I I contacted Paul Hawkins, who was Orkai, uh, explained who I was and what I wanted, um, and then spent uh, a few months, probably almost a year, to get the system operating successfully within a very short time frame, with a massive accuracy level. And then we spent the next three or four years convincing FIFA that that technology should be brought in. So you can see that I'm a great believer in technology, but I'm also a believer in communication and transparency. So now I'm managing professional referees. That was pretty hard. I I brought in levels of accountability. Some referees didn't meet the standard and were dismissed or moved out of the Premier League. So those were all part of, if you like, the introduction of professional refereeing, the toughness that comes. And because the modern referee is operating within, in front of 22 cameras, a switch of a button, uh, an angle can be afforded, me the viewer sat at home, that's not available to the referee because he's got a pair of legs and he might not be in the right position, somebody might have blocked his view. His assistants haven't seen it. So it, it's pretty obvious to me that VAR was required. So I'm a supporter. Where I wanted VAR is just like when I went to watch rugby and listened to the guys, the referees, and said, with a communication kit, and came off way and said, I've got to have that in football. In the same way I'd watched VAR in a different format, operating in rugby people like Nigel Owens and the French referee, and, and suddenly the, the fans are involved, you know? They know what's going off, they might disagree with the decision, but whatever the outcome is, they've kept informed and they're aware of what is happening. So it will, I will only be satisfied when VAR is used in that way, that when someone is looking at the, at the monitor now, he could, in fact, be looking at the big screen inside the stadium. Okay, Manchester, Manchester United and
1: Liverpool have got problems, but problems are not insurmountable. Um and the, and the and the spectators can listen in. Yeah. Um, so last year I was massively critical of the
2: Premier League and the way they'd introduced VAR. They were made, they made a complete mess of it. Um Competent referees were having other referees. In some instances, less competent, capable referees, but less competent, less experienced, telling them about a decision, and in my opinion, getting it wrong, where you have to have the match official on a lot of subjective decisions, viewing the monitor. So I was getting bored of criticising referees and the management of the PGMOL for allowing that to happen and not having the foresight to sell to the Premier League, if it was the Premier League saying we're not having side monitors, but they were there. And they're telling me as a fan, we're going to use it, and we're going to use it sparingly, but we're going to use it. Three hundred eighty games in a Premier League season. They used
1: it three times. That's not sparingly. That means they've not used it. So now we've, we've started a new season,
2: and we're actually seeing referees on subjective decisions, going to the monitor and having a second look. You know, the, the process of a referee is dead simple. Uh, you see,
1: you recognize, you think and you act. That's what you did, or today when you drove your car.
2: You got in. You're seeing things, you're thinking about them. Is that person going to step off the pavement? Uh, You're recognising that as well. You know, hey, just a minute, I've got to slow down. Is this traffic light going to turn to red? And then you're making decisions. Either you accelerate, you brake or whatever, or you steer in a different direction.
1: That's exactly what a referee's doing. But he's doing it in fractions of a second. And sometimes he hasn't got the view.
2: You know, a pillar box, whatever it is, is blocking the view. You don't know behind a bus stop where there is somebody there who's going to step out onto the pavement. You've got to be prepared for it. It might never happen, but you've got to be prepared for it.
1: And that's, in a sense, what is for. BAR is to actually say, right, okay, have another look. You know?
2: And, of course, then this started with the nonsense of the off lines. And you go, which, which shot are they taking? And the reason I can make that judgment is if you've sat with Orca and the technicians and the scientists, and they're saying, look, we're going to have to move the camera speed to 500 frames per second. And around each goal, key, we're going to have to have seven cameras to make sure so we capture the image. And we're going to have to change the colour of the ball. You know, there's got to be some... Sp- panels on it that give us a definite edge out of circumference of the ball and we're operating at 500 frames per second and we're 99.999 accurate okay we had one instant where they didn't switch it on or something was stupid at Aston Villa last season but it operates very accurately and people have bought into that and you've got to get referees you've got to get the public into the same process now what what I think is quite amazing is that, of course, there's no fans in the ground. So the pressure of going to the monitor and the time constraints are not there because we are sitting watching it and we're informed. The, the commentator is saying, look, there he goes, off he's going he's go to the pitch side monitor, he's having a look,
1: and the time is absorbed. Whereas if you're in the stand and you're thinking, what's going off now? Where's he going?
2: And all of a sudden, it comes with a decision that you've not been involved in, and you go, That can't be right. You, as a fan, have not seen it. So it, it's all part of selling, it's part of understanding that the fans are important. They do need to be informed. And, and that helps sell the game. You know, why, why do I go to Penistone Church? Because I can listen to the players, I can see them, they can speak to me, um, the opposition as well. I can shout at them if need be. But what I see is like a connection. Whereas in a modern game, we've drifted. You know, we see them getting off. Oh yeah, I don't can, you know, they get off a posh bus, they've got wearing earphones, and, they, and off they go, ignoring everybody. You know, I, I can remember following players in in my era, and yeah, it's not that long ago, really, in, in the history of the game. And they would come out and sign the autographs and 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 they would chat with they were part and parcel so we have lost some of the connection i think and and the sadness is that there are a lot of players who play the game who are very articulate and very knowledgeable and we hear them don't we 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 now hear them as pundits on on television or on radio and you're thinking i wish they'd really been allowed to do that given the time afforded and we capture what the spirit of that individual sometimes it can be that you're banned from string followers and everybody else thinks giving giving jordan the a right
1: rollicking right which is a million miles from the truth so var is here to stay I want to see changes. Um, I'm
2: happy to. okay, if it's in small steps and that's what you want, fine. Um, I want to see a different relationship between referee and VAR. I don't, I don't generally think that you can have, uh, for example, a referee of the quality of an experience of someone like Martin Atkinson. who's a
1: top-class referee, right? being told by a guy who's just come on the list that he's got that wrong because that's
2: what he's got to do and I wonder sometimes if there's a reluctance to actually come in or sometimes last year we you know we we were seeing some decisions that were absolutely crazy and then people justifying it you know spokesperson of the Premier League well You know, look, I think Donald Gallagher's a great referee. He was a terrific referee, great, I I love managing him. But I know that sometimes he comes out and says abject nonsense, explaining what a decision is. Tell me the truth, be prepared to say the referee's got it wrong, he's a human being. But when those guys come out and justify a decision, On some of the handball decisions we've seen in recent weeks, and say, Well, this is the law. And I'm going, I've got the written word here, and you're applying it differently. Who is telling you to apply it that way? Because that's the person that the media need to speak to. Tell us how you can accept an accidental handball by a defender, you know, as an offence, because it doesn't say in the law. An accidental offence is when a forward handles and it goes directly into goal from his hand or arm or it goes straight to a player of his own team who puts it in the back of the net that's the that's the offense so i think sometimes the clarification on law interpretations is seen through by the fans they go (laughs) what an explanation we still don't believe it and i think That's a chip to credibility. And what I try to bring, but yeah, it's not easy, is it? Not easy when you've got an employee and you're actually saying publicly on television, the referee's made a mistake. But then I would say, look, um, this is why he's made the mistake. He's not in the position. He's caught short. You know, the the difficulty sometimes of, you know, the skill sets of some of the top players um, catch people out. You know, and, and the catch referees out. You you think you think this player's going to plant it long, then all of a sudden he plays it short. You've prepared for the long ball, and now you've got to scramble back. And this is why the sports science side of it was so important. I don't think people understand that the average distance that a referee covers in a game is about 11,500 metres. Um and 1,000 metres of that, on average, is at 7 metres per second. So in my time, when somebody like Webb and Clattenberg could get from one penalty area to the next in 11 seconds.
1: And today, I watch some referees, and I think, <laughs> they're never going to make that. So why, why have we allowed
2: that standard to drop when you're actually building up and you're creating a cadre of world-class referees? But we have some good referees coming through. And, and you know, um, I think Chris Cavanaugh is a top-class referee. I'd just like him to be fitter and mobile, more mobile. He is mobile, but I'd like him to bring in a dynamic sprint into his performance. Because when a player or a group of players make passes that catch you out of position, the only way you can recover... Is by putting an explosive sprint in. In my day, it was about endurance. All our training was endurance. We'd go out, run around the football field, 11 laps, 12 laps, 13 laps, keep it going, and all that. That's what we did. Now, sports science, with the warm up that I introduced, thanks to uh, Matt Weston, we brought the warm up procedure in to referees. Everybody said, What are you doing? Keith, why why is the referees warming up? Well, what are the players doing? You know, it's injury prevention. It's getting used to the atmosphere and all that goes with it, building it up. Why, Why did I have a sports psychologist? So that, you know, they can understand conflict management. They can understand players that they're refereeing and their own body language isn't arrogant.
1: You know, I mean, look, I was critical this week of of Mike Dean because he sent Billich off, Billich off. Right at the end of the day,
2: the decision to send Billich off was the correct one. Let me let me not take away the fact that Billich was out of order. But when you actually understand that a referee
1: is about management and prevention, it would have been right for Dean to just stop and say, "Have you got a problem?"
2: can you keep the distance because of COVID? What's your problem? And if he then asks the question, Billick, is it what about the offside or what
1: about Gibbs sending off? Dean is an absolute solid ground. He's, you know, he's right to send uh,
2: Gibbs off. And that might've just prevented Billick. I mean, look, there's 29,999 referees disagree with me because I'm saying that, because they, they were applauding me and saying, about time some of these referees showed tough, toughness against the managers who want to go. I think you build your career and your reputation on how you deal with people. And if you afford respect, they'll give you respect. <clears throat> and I think that could have been dealt with and handled much better as a prevention. I
0: have to say, Keith, it's, so far it's been an absolute education. And the, the last question I've got for you, a very broad one. Um, We've talked about your experiences, the characters, modern refereeing. Obviously, for instance, I've got a friend who's going through the system here in Scotland. Um, we'll be managing League One this season and hopefully get into the Scottish Premiership in the next few years. What advice would you give to the young referees coming through?
1: Um I think first of all, have a foundation of real fitness. Treat every game as a cup final. You have to set a a very high standard.
2: And the only way you do that is to analyze your own performance. If there are other referees that are watching your performance, fine, absorb it. If they are going to issue you with a report, don't just take that one report on its own, put three or four the side of each other, and where they're saying you're positive, mark highlight that in the report. And, and equally, if they're saying you need to improve in a certain area, highlight that as well, so that you've got a strengths and weakness analysis. Um, it's a roller coaster, and sometimes you can look forward to promotion and you get disappointed because it doesn't come on that particular year. Um, be patient, but also want it, and therefore. You, you get out what you put in and you have to win the respect. And that means great levels of integrity and professionalism um, and, and having the ability to communicate and having the ability to say, right, okay, we're gonna operate this as a team. I've got trust in you as the assistant referees. Tell me if something's wrong, be prepared in the same way that if if I've opened that door to being criticised by them, that opens the door for me to have a go at them if they are not performing well, if they can't,
1: you know, if it's, you know, they could have helped you in certain situations. I think, um, arrive at the ground early and prepare well. Look at sports science.
2: Um, Understand what the top referees do. when you when you're looking at other referees, what are their what are the bits that you like? What makes them top class referees? So you're in that sphere, and then prepare. There's nothing you know. You you spend two or three hours uh, getting to know the teams that you're going to referee. What are the potential hotspots? Um, how you know, how tactical changes during the course of the game or one decision can actually turn up the heat and how you deal with it. So when those difficult times come in the game, you have to raise your your standards. But you know, I just like referees to smile a bit. I know it's an environment, but we're in the entertainment game. And sometimes I think you can see the, the physical pressure through the facial expressions of, of, of match referees when the goings to get tough, you know, and you've got to be your own person. Ultimately at the end of the day, there are going to be tough calls that you've got to make, you've got to make them. Don't shirk them. But find a way. All too often I see some reactive referees. I don't like reactive referees. I prefer proactive referees that prevent, that recognize the temperatures coming in and they can have a quiet word. Can I have a quiet word with the captain on the fly, you know. Step management is what I like referees to do. Quiet word. Run alongside a player and say, "Hey, you're getting in my vision. Can you look? I don't want to upset you, but just can you keep out my space, sort of thing? Let's not have conflict." And no response from him. Then that becomes public. And so, if it is public, it's fairly quick, and the message is clear. And I've got, a, I've got a. a A statement for referees to use. It isn't, next time you do that, it's a yellow card. Next time you do that, it's red.
1: Next time you're off or whatever. It isn't that. Use this expression. I want an improvement. It leaves your field
2: wide open. I want an improvement. And he goes, improvement in what? And he knows, you're leaving. And then when you have to come and caution, and it's more public, you bring the captain across and say, look, I've got the message. I had the quiet word, didn't I? And now, like, let's let stop it here now. I've cautioned you, and let that caution count. Sometimes, referees go on a crazy, you know, I watch it often in the Premier League. You, you suddenly go like, one, two, three, four yellow cards are produced in like a matter of seconds, minutes. And I'm going, what, what's that about? Slow it down, put your foot on the ball, get the message across, let players calm down, take the heat out of the situation. So the management of a game is more than the management of a game, it's the management of an event. And people say, well, referees are not there to entertain, they're not. But what I think is interesting is when I look back and I spent time with uh, a great Scottish referee in Canada, Uh, Tiny Wharton and Wharton gave me loads of advice you know Uh, couldn't quite get to grips with his two brothers that he used to introduce me to (laughs) out of a bottle Uh, I can remember that one evening in in uh, Seanigan Lake but he talked a lot of common sense because he said look Keith the fans have not come to watch you they've come to watch the players so you've got to facilitate that particular game. You've got to bring the best out of the players and you've got to make certain if you've got 22 players to begin with, try and get 22 players off you know, Um, and, and I think that's, it's a lot of advice because I think that for the modern referee,
1: um, the exposure to error could be a nightmare. Can, can be
2: debilitating uh, so if they take the view that they learn from their mistakes and avoid them in the future then that's referee. i think sometimes when i see referees the same referee repeating the same error then that's when i get frustrated and say i can't put up with that but you know um it gets to the top levels of the game and then he has the opportunity, like I have, of visiting over 100 countries, either refereeing or lecturing, on refereeing, um, meeting presidents and, and meeting royalty and all that goes with it. But having a, um, an enjoyable time on a sport that I'm actually on the field and got the best seat in the house, and I'm watching these top-class players, and there's nothing finer then suddenly to be recognised by them as being a reasonably competent referee.
0: An absolute education as I've said and, and, and a fascinating insight into what it's like to, to referee at the elite level. Keith, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks very much. So we'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave and our will all be open I'll be filled with song, I'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean I will make her home in a deep sea cave And her shells will all be open
1: I'll be filled with song, I'll be filled with song